First John chapter number three tonight. First uh, John chapter number three, and I want to preach to you on a topic that, uh, at least in in our stripe brand, whatever you want to call it, uh, our type of church, uh, many times we don't preach very much on. And I think it's because we're afraid we're going to get too far into the ditch with it. And let me say that there is a harmony in the life of the believer. And uh, we can have a disproportionate emphasis at times. Uh, there's some times that you can, you can be right, and there's times when you can be dead right. Now you say, what's the difference between right and dead right? Well, there's the fellow walking across the street, and he sees that the uh, turn signal uh, has changed, and it's his turn to walk. And he starts to walk through there, but then he stops because he sees that there's a big old bus coming. Uh, now, he was right to walk out there, but then there's another fellow that comes along behind him, and uh, he sees the signal change, and he begins to walk, and he sees that bus coming. He says, well, I'm just going to walk on anyway, because I got the right. And uh, he just, like that. He, was, uh, he wasn't he was just right. He was dead right, you know. And I believe sometimes we can have a disproportionate emphasis on things, but I do believe that there is a need for the message that God's given us for this evening. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 10. The Bible says, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. Now, that doesn't G and Hall well with uh, today's modern ideology, but that's biblical. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. Neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray together this evening. Heavenly Father, bless Your Word tonight. Lord, I know that I'm not always in the shape or situation, Father, that I can be blessed. There's times to my own disobedience that Your blessing me would be an endorsement of my carnality. But God, I know that Your Word can always be blessed. Father, I'd ask that You would do in hearts and lives what needs to be accomplished in such a way, Father, that we would be uh, mindful that it was You that has done it and give You all the praise and honor and glory that is due Your name. Father, if there's one that's lost amongst us tonight, show them their need of Calvary. Lord, I would pray not that they would feel alienated, but that they would feel alien from the grace of God tonight. Lord, not that they would uh, feel uncomfortable, but that they would feel unconverted until they come to know Your Son as their Savior. Lord, I pray that You'd show them their need. Lord, if You don't show it to them, they won't see it. And we'll be sure to praise You for it. Father, we're trusting You, seeing as You know hearts, to accomplish these things. And we'll uh, give You all the glory, Father. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, tonight I want to preach to you on the topic of brotherly love. Now, this is a topic that I believe there is a certain brand or stripe or flavor of uh, uh, Christians, or sometimes it's Christians falsely so-called, that talk a lot about brotherly love. 
And you'll hear the word love talked, uh, spoken about a whole awful lot, uh, especially in the new evangelical culture and in the ecumenical culture of today. It's all about love, 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 love. And can I say to you that God is love? The Bible teaches that. Can I say to you that uh, God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Can I say that our God is a God of love? But can I say that uh, love does have a dual side to it? Uh, the farmer loves his crops, so he hates weeds, you understand. The shepherd loves his sheep, so he hates wolves. And in the book of Jude, it gives us some things that we're going to have to despise and hate if we're going to win people to Christ. That's not our message tonight. Uh, but I believe that it is worth mentioning uh, that love uh, instills a passionate response to things. You say, well, I don't believe that necessarily. Well, get around some of these teenagers the first time they realize uh, that there's someone in the world other than themselves. And you'll see that they, they're excited. They're passionate. They, uh, they want to spend every waking moment with that person. They want to talk to them. They want to text them. They want to send them homing pigeons. They'll do anything to communicate with them in some way, shape, manner, or form. There's a passion about love. And I believe it's biblical. Calvary was passionate, you understand was passionate. Uh, whenever Christ died on the cross, it was not a light thing, uh, it, but it was a serious thing. It was a passionate thing. It took a lot for Christ to do that, but He did that because of His great love wherewith He loved us. And this same type of love is expected of believers one towards another. I would go so far as to say that if you don't love other believers, you're not saved. And you say, well, now, wait a minute, preacher. What right do you... Well, that's, that's what God says, isn't it? Look back again at verse number 10. Neither he that loveth not his brother. Uh, you're the children of the devil if you do not love your brother. You're not a child of God if you do not love your brother. Uh, now, the Bible says in the book of John, chapter number 13, there just a few hours before our Lord would be crucified as He's speaking to His disciples. Uh, not only does our love of the brethren prove to us that we're saved, but it proves to others that we're saved, uh, because He said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Love can be summed up in this word, and it's the word sacrifice. Love is measured by sacrifice. You say, I don't know if I believe that, preacher. Well, look through the word of God. God commendeth his love toward us. How did God prove that he loved us? God loved us before Calvary, you understand. But he, he proved and he manifested and he commended that love towards us through Calvary. And you'll find out very quickly, and I, I understand in this room, most of the people that we're talking to uh, this evening, uh, you're married and you've been married for several years, and you know exactly what I mean. Uh, could, could I just give you, and this is going to rattle the foundation of some of these young people. Do you want to know, well, I'm going to talk to these girls, because girls always have a great idea of love. Do you know what love really is? I'm going to burst your bubble now. You want to know what love really is? Love is about putting up with someone. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, I know. It's about putting up with somebody. You say, well, now, wait a minute, preacher. I don't know. Well, ask your spouse sometime, and they'll tell you the same thing. It's about sacrifice. It's, it's about the crucifixion of self, not just for the Savior, but for the saints. That's what love's about. If you're selfish, you're not going to be a loving person. Because you're going to be watching out for you and yours alone, and you're not going to know what true love is. The Bible commands us to endeavor in brotherly love, to love one another. It's interesting that God could command such a thing as love. The notion of modern-day society is love is just kind of one of these things. It's like a, a musical talent. You either got it or you ain't. But the Bible commands us. A new commandment have I given unto you. 
The Bible commands us to love one another, so we understand that love not only has to do with sacrifice, but it has to do with the will. We can determine to show love to another person. Love has much less to do with how you feel about others and much more to do with how you feel about Christ. Love doesn't have to do with whether that person is so lovable. You weren't very lovable when Christ died for you. You're not very lovable now, I hate to break it to you, and neither am I. We're all just wretched people at the end of the day. We're just depraved, right? Every one of us. If it wasn't for Christ, every single one of us would be the worst rendition of ourselves that we could possibly be. There's no question about it. And so Christ has made the difference. He loved us when we were unlovable, and He enables us to love others when they're unlovable. The reason we have a problem loving other people is because we think love has to do with us, and it doesn't. We think love is some drummed-up emotion that we can uh, fester or foster. I don't know which it is towards another person when it has to do with the crucifixion of self in light of the sacrifice of Calvary. That's what love is about tonight. And John gives us three truths that I want to give you very quickly and just expound on them. I I could give you a bunch. In fact, I wrote down, just sitting here studying, I wrote seven words down beside this passage. I'm not going to... Don't get nervous. Amen. I'm not going to do that to you tonight, but I will give you a few thoughts. I would say, look at verse number 16. Notice what it says. Hereby perceive we the love of God. Now, here we have the source of the love of God. We have it manifest and we have it perceived. Uh, It says, hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us and we ought... Notice that word, and. It's a conjunctive word. Connects two separate ideals together. It sews together this idea of the love of Calvary and the idea of the love that we have one towards another. It it binds them together. It galvanizes them into union one with the other. It says, and we ought to love others also. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So we understand, first off, that the love of God and brotherly love is an extensive thing. I want you to get this tonight. Uh, The only way you're going to learn to love others is in light of Calvary. It is not your love that is manifest through determinate self-will, but it is the extension of the love of Calvary shown to others through you as human instrumentality. Uh, The fact is, if you wait on somebody to become lovable before you love them, you're going to be waiting forever. And let me say this, usually the most unlovable people are the ones that need to be loved the most. They're the ones that need to see the love of Calvary more than anyone else. And we understand that the love that we have towards one another and the love that God showed towards us, it's the one and the same love. It's not just a a, a copy. It's not a replication of the love of Calvary, but it is the extension of that love. You notice that the Bible says that the Holy Ghost has shed abroad the love of God in our hearts. What did He do? He made known unto us what love was all about. We see first off the perception of this love. Hereby perceive we. That word perceive means to gain knowledge of, to understand. We, we recognize the revelation of a truth comes into the scope of our own experience. We perceive this thing. 
as you sit in a service, it's amazing. Uh, you know, isn't it interesting how most of us, we can't hear a thing all week long. People have to holler at us before we never hear them. But you get in a church service and try to pay attention, and all of a sudden you can hear the crickets when they scratch their legs. You can hear somebody drop a pin on a carpet floor. You can hear all these different things. Your perception changes. And in the scope and context of what you're trying to do, you begin to perceive some things that you otherwise would not have known. It's been there the whole time, but you are now keenly aware of it in the Bible. The Bible says that we perceive God's love through Calvary. It existed before Calvary, but when God chose to manifest and show His love towards others. And by the way, you want to know how big the love of God is? It's so big that Calvary was the only way He could express it. You understand that? I mean, sending His Son, and and listen, I understand all the theological implications. I understand that it was a vicarious substitutionary death for you and I. I understand that He uh, was the the sacrifice that had been shadowed forth from Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. I understand He was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. I understand all those things. But I'm saying if we just want to hone in on one aspect, we could say this. The love of God is so big that only through giving His Son could He express it. That's the only way. That's how we came to know what love was. You didn't know what love was until Calvary. You might have known what acquaintanceship or affection was. You might have known what friendliness was. Uh, You might have known what it was to tolerate people, but you didn't know true love. True love is selfless. True love, it, it does not have to be reciprocated. Do you hear me tonight? It doesn't have to be reciprocated. God, listen, God loves the sinner whether he ever comes to know the Savior or not. He still loves him. That doesn't mean that he's going to forgive him of his sins. I'm not saying it's universalism. He'll still die and go to hell because of his sins. But that love was still there. God was still willing to save him. He's tasted death for every man. And Calvary was for any and all that would come unto the Savior. I mean, I'm saying tonight that true love doesn't have to be reciprocated for it to be valid. God loved each and every one of us. And even if we had never called on Him, He would have still loved us. He wouldn't have loved us to the degree of casting off and compromising His holiness. He wouldn't have loved us to the degree... And by the way, it's not just that God prefers to not compromise His holiness. He said it is impossible to God for God to compromise His holiness. He could not do that. You say, what would happen? The seas would rage and burn. The universe would implode upon itself. Listen, He is the first cause, the creative being. He is the source and origin of all that we see. His truth and His Word is the foundation upon which the worlds were framed. And if it be proven untrue, then our very existence has no validity to it. So His holiness could not be compromised. But just because His holiness could not be compromised, that does not mean that His love towards us is unvalid. The love of Calvary is an unreciprocated love. Uh, we'll never repay it, you understand. But He didn't save us. Listen carefully. He didn't save us so that we would repay Him. We ought to repay Him to the best of our ability. But He didn't save us so that we would repay Him. He saved us because it was an expression of His love. If He saved us as part of some deal, then it would not be grace. It was an expression of God's love. We see the perception, but we see that there's a pattern given here. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Brother Ralph, just as he did, we ought to. Well, that's a tall order, friend. I don't care what anybody's ever done to you. They've never done anything that comes close to how we've done God. I know it's not fancy, but that's the truth. 
I don't care how bad somebody's wronged you. They've never wronged you to such a degree as we have wronged God. Not just before we were saved, but since we've been saved. You say, well, preacher, I don't. well, maybe you're more spiritual than me. But I know for my life that's true. I've never betrayed anybody like I've betrayed God. I mean, I, hey, I'm preaching right now. I'm just being honest with you. I've never betrayed anyone like I've betrayed God. I've never failed anyone like I've failed God. And He still loves me and forgives me. That's my pattern for how I ought to love the brethren. We ought to love them with the same love. Not just like the same love, but with the same love of Calvary. Understanding that we forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, hath also forgiven us. He's forgiven you. He's forgiven me. This is the pattern. He prayed for their forgiveness while He was still on the cross. While He was still suffering. Listen, uh, I'll tell you the mark of spiritual maturity when we're willing to love people and do right by them, even when they're doing wrong by us. That's hard. But listen, what glory is it? Uh, what, what big thing is it if you can forgive your friends and your acquaintances, forgive those that do right by you? The Bible says even the sinners do this. <laughs> That's no big thing. But hey, when you're reviled and you revile not again, when you're buffeted and you buffet not back, when you're talked bad about and you don't talk bad uh, back about them, that's when love really begins to take action and take footing. Let me say this. Most of the stuff that people complain about in Baptist churches, they're showing their own spiritual immaturity because if they had the kind of brotherly love that they should have, instead of complaining about it, they'd be forgiven them for it. I mean, aren't you glad that, that God didn't wait for you to come around before He died for your sins? He didn't wait for you to get real spiritual with Him. He died for your sins when you was lost and undone. I hear people quote all the time, John fifteen thirteen: Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. They'll say, oh, what a love Calvary is. No, that says greater love hath no man than this. Now, he was 100% man, but he was 100% God too. He was not dying for his friends. He was dying for lost sinners, aliens, and enemies of God. That's who he was dying for on Calvary. That's the pattern we have. Until someone's done you as wrong as you've done God, I don't think you've got any excuse to not try to love them, not try to help them, not try to do something for them. We see uh, not only a perception of brotherly love and the pattern of brotherly love, but we see the presumption of brotherly love. We ought... That word ought, we use it all the time. You ought to go do this, you ought to go do that. That denotes responsibility and obligation. Uh, loving the brethren is not optional. It's not optional. It's a command of God. It's an imperative. We are required to love one another. I'm reminded, and I know I've quoted a hundred times, you're probably sick of it, but I'm always reminded of the old poem uh, that, that the fellow, you know what I'm talking about, Brother Ralph, you've heard me, where he talks about uh, to dwell above with saints in love, oh, that will be glory, but to dwell below with the saints, I know that's a different story. You know, you've heard that, I know you have. But here's the thing, if you're going to be the kind of Christian you ought to be, you can't try to pick and choose and decide whether you want to love people. You're not doing it for them anyway, you're doing it for Christ. You can't pick and choose. We tend to think that our life belongs to us. I was talking to my Sunday school class this morning about the bleed-over effect that has taken place between modern politics and biblical Christianity. And understand that the right political system and the right spiritual and scriptural system are worlds apart one from each other. They're not one and the same. And I fear sometimes that we have become nationalist. 
Now you say, well, shouldn't we be nationalists? Well, yeah, we should be nationalists because our citizenship is in heaven. <laughs> you understand? I, I, I'm American. I'm as American as it gets. I mean, I eat my red meat with a side of red meat, you know, and, and apple pie to drink. I mean, that's... I'm as American as it gets. I believe capitalism is the best possible political system uh, available to a fallen and sin-sick mankind. I believe it's the best. I believe self-interest. Listen, they'd brand me a heretic in places in this city tonight when I say this. But I believe economic self-interest is in the best interest of a people. I believe if I'm looking out for my financial interest, I'm talking about economically now. I believe if I'm looking out for my financial self-interest and you're looking out for your financial self-interest, when we begin to understand that we can help one another and both of our financial self-interests will be bolstered, the economy begins to grow. You understand we live in a society right now where it's not self-interest, but it's government interest. That is the mantra in the mode. But don't confuse for one moment and begin to think that the proper political system is the means and ideology which we ought to adopt into biblical Christianity. Because remember, the ideal political system to a fallen, sin-sick man is capitalism and democracy. Uh, but understand that the real ideal political system is a theocracy and a monarchy with a king of kings and a lord of lords. Uh, it's the best thing available to a sin-sick man. But listen, when we're talking about how the church ought to operate, we're talking about something entirely different. And we have a tendency to adopt this notion of self-interest. It's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. The reason we get so offended when people do us wrong is because we think we're somebody. If we'd realize that we're just dirt, it wouldn't bother us so bad. <laughs> it wouldn't upset us that bad. I mean, hey, somebody spit on you. You think you're somebody, you get offended. If, uh, you know, if, if, if you think you're dirt, you're going to say, hey, friend, that's hydration, you know. That'll help me grow. I mean, I'm saying we think too much of ourselves, and that's why we get so offended. It's not optional whether we love people or not. It's required. Just as it's required in a steward that a man be found faithful. It's not recommended, it's required. What's well, required of the brethren that we love one another. You say, I got a problem with somebody. Well, you need to get over it. Amen. You say, Well, how do I get over it? At an altar. That's how. You say, They haven't asked for forgiveness. Well, God forgave you before you asked him to, or at least he died for your sins before you asked him to. He was willing to forgive you. And listen, friend, they may not have everything squared away, and they may not even like you. They may, they may not even spit on you if you're on fire. But it's not worth it to wreck your relationship with Christ by staying bitter. It's just not worth it. We see that brotherly love is extensive, Brother Apple. We see that brotherly love is expensive. Whoso hath this world's goods, and seeth his brother have need. I want to read it. I don't want to misquote, misquote it. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? We see, and we've talked about the perception of love, but now I want to talk about the perceptiveness of brotherly love. You say, well, what's the difference? The perception of love is talking about how we understand the love of Calvary. But the perceptiveness of brotherly love is the attribute of love whereby it looks and observes the needs of others. It says, whoso hath this world's good and seeth, seeth. I'll tell you the reason we're not compassionate is because we're not seeing. Every time in the New Testament when the Bible spoke of Christ being moved with compassion, it's always connected to the eyes. When he looked upon him, he was moved with compassion. But seeing them as sheep having no shepherd, he was moved with compassion. The reason we do not have compassion is because we're unwilling to see people's needs. You know why we're not burdened to reach people? 
We're not burdened because we refuse to see people. They become faceless. And I've challenged you to do this before, and I need to do it more in my life. Next time you go to the Walmart, don't you lie to me and say you don't go to the Walmart, all right? I don't care how spiritual you are, we all go, amen? Everybody needs milk every now and then. And when you go to the Walmart, understand that as you walk up and down the aisles, you're walking past men, women, boys, and girls that are on their way to a devil's hell. I I, I think we have to be careful about statistics, um, but I do believe that the Bible is a statistical book. And I believe as you study the Word of God, there are certain principles. While they may not always play out in the particular, in the principle they will always play out. And I was teaching in Sunday school this morning about the seed and the sower. Four types of ground that the seed can be sown upon. Only one, only one is the Word of God successful upon. If we were to lay, uh, use that as a working model, and again, I believe we have to be careful, but if we were to use that as a working model, I don't think it would be way out of line to say uh, that probably at least less than a quarter of the people that you see up and down the streets, and probably a whole lot less, truly have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We've got to open our eyes. We've got to see these needs. There's some people that are so self-involved they can't see others' needs. They're always worried about them. Let me tell you something. You'd be amazed if you'll tend to others how much God will tend to you. And I fear sometimes the reason God doesn't tend to us like we would want Him to is because we're too busy trying to tend to us when there's others that need to be tended to. We see that uh, brotherly love has a perceptiveness about it, but there's a price about it. It says if you shut up your bowels of compassion, how dwelleth the love of God in you? You know, let me just be as blunt as I can. You know what it's talking about? It's talking about money. I know we all get nervous when we say money. I don't know why that is. You know, most people get nervous when you start to talk about their God. Have you ever noticed that? Why is it we get so nervous when we start talking about money? Shouldn't that alarm us? It could be that we've placed money on a throne in our hearts, and we get a little nervous when you start talking about money because we don't want you anywhere near our bank account. But it says, "...hath this world's goods." Well, that's stuff. You know, it's a biblical word. That is a King James Bible word, Brother Charlie. Stuff. It's all through the Old Testament. He said, what does it mean? What well, means stuff? He said, what kind of stuff? What kind of stuff you got? That's the kind of stuff it's talking about. Just stuff. I don't know. I got stuff at my house. You got stuff at your house. Usually it's stuff that could be thrown away if we get the motivation to do it. Stuff. Material things. Saying if you got it and somebody needs it, and God gives you grace, too. You ought to give it. Say, I'd go broke doing that. No, you wouldn't. God take care of you. Say, well, I don't know if I believe that. Well, try him. So I said in the book of Malachi, prove me. Try me. You'll never outgive God. I know you've heard the old story about the Christian businessman, Mr. J.C. Penney's. You may have never heard about him, but you've sure been in his uh, stores. You women have, and you men have sat outside in them leather chairs outside of there. But uh, you've, you've been there before, I'm sure. Old J.C. Penney decided that he was going to try to uh, turn things around on God. And instead of uh, giving 10% to God and keeping 90%, he said, I'm going to try giving 90% to God and keeping 10%. And J.C. Penney died one of the wealthiest men in America. Listen, you're not going to outgive God. Help somebody. You'd be amazed how much it'll help you. You know, the Bible says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You know, if you ever find yourself in a ditch with no one to pull you out, you ought to stop and look and ask yourself, Have I been there to pull others out when they were in the ditch? Because it could be because I was not merciful. I have no one here now to be merciful to me. 
we need to learn that there's a price to this, but there is a proof to it, Brother Ralph. It says, how dwelleth the love of God in him? We can do all the talking we want, but our life is really the one that does the talking. It is a proof of the new birth that we have a love towards other believers. It's a proof of it. It is a proof that God dwells in us because God is love. It is a proof of the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that we have a love towards other believers. And sometimes people that have no interest but self-interest, and they're all about themselves, they have no care, no concern for the needs of another, it's a good indication that they've never truly been born again. You know why? Because they're living a lot like their daddy, children of the devil. You say, that's harsh. No, it's biblical. We're all either children of the devil or we're children of God, one of the two. And the Bible says in this, the children of God are manifested in the children of the devil. He that doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Now, that's straight preaching. You know, the word love is found more times in the book of First John than it is anywhere else in the word of God. Do you know, in fact, that it is found more times in the book of First John than in any other books of the Bible combined? Pretty hard preaching that John gives us here. You know why? Because true love is not hypocrisy and it's not flattery. True love is a real, I mean, uh, rubber uh, meets the floor in the shoe leather kind of life. That's what real love is. It changes and affects you. John says this is a proof. You want to know the acid test. Do you really love the brethren? Do you, do you weep with them that weep? Do you rejoice with them that rejoice? Does it affect you? Brother Larry said a hundred times, and, and, and I feel the same way. I mean, I'm closer with my church family than I am with my family. Now, I'm blessed most of my church family is my family. But, uh, you know, but I like those that ain't better than those that are anyway, so it don't really matter. You know, I mean, my church family is my family. I have family that I can't hardly talk to. You say, why? Because though we may be uh, physically family, spiritually we're not. I'm a child of God, born again, blood washed and redeemed, and they're still a child of the devil, lost and alienated and hopeless and helpless. And i got nothing to talk to them about. I love them. I want to reach them. I mean, I can sit down, I can talk to them about football or fishing. After that, I'm done. i got nothing else to talk about with them. Because all I know is that of Calvary. And that's what my life is. That's what ought to consume us. It is a proof of whether we are a believer, whether we love the brethren. Let me give you one final thing. We see that that uh, that true love, brotherly love, is extensive. We see that it is expensive, but we see that it is expressive. It says, my little children, love not in word, nor in tongue, but in deed and in truth. We see first a false love that is spoken about, Brother Ralph, not in word or in tongue. You say, preacher, is that saying, you know, that you ought not tell people that you that you love them? It's you know, it's like a fellow that that married his wife, you know, and and uh, told told him he loved her uh, the night they got married, and then after that he said, all right, that's enough. Never told her again. <laughs> Amen. Said, well, you know, I already told you once. No, it's not saying we should not tell people we love them. It's not saying that we should not express the love of God to others in a verbal sense. But what it's saying is that there is such thing as a false and fake and phony love that we can exhibit to each other. You say, what is a fake and false and phony love? Well, that's when you tell someone you love them, but then when it comes down to helping them, you're not interested in doing it. That's what that is. And you know, we're all guilty of that. I was joking this morning about moving. You find out who your true friends are when it's time to move, especially if you move into an apartment. Say amen right there. I mean, you know, it's second story. I mean, you find out really where the love of God is when you have to do that. 
You know, but the reality is that the reason we joke about that is there's some truth to it. Everybody's got a truck and willing to help. But then, you know, something came up that day and I'm not able to. True love is not just a phony and fake love. Everybody likes to talk about loving one another because it's easy to talk about it, Brother Ralph. It's easy to talk about it. It's easy to tell each other that, that you love each other. It's a whole other thing to really mean it and act upon it. We see that it is a, uh, we see a false love spoken about, but a true love is a functioning love. It, it says, indeed, indeed, we express the love of God to others through our actions. How did God express and manifest His love towards us? Through an action. He sent His Son to die for us on the cross of Calvary. His love already existed. He did not create or muster love at Calvary. The love already existed. Christ was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The love was already there, but it was expressed at Calvary. It was manifest at Calvary through an action. And in the very same way, we prove our love one towards another through an action. You know, being married, it's usually the little actions, too. It's not the big ones. You know, you can buy your wife flowers or candy or whatever once or twice a year. But I'm going to be honest with you. If you don't tell her you love her on a consistent basis and try to do little things to, uh, for her and help her and, and, and do things that will encourage her, she probably ain't going to believe you. That's deep. <laughs> but that's the truth, isn't it? You'd feel the same way. I mean, you'd feel the same way because true love functions. It does something. It affects the life of others. And then finally, true love is factual. It says, in truth. In truth. What does that mean, preacher? Does that mean I've got to feel like I love somebody before I can love them? No. What does the Bible say is truth? Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is true. It's not got anything to do with how you feel about them. It's got to do with how you feel about Christ. The truth that you love them based upon and through is not not that they owe you, but that you owe Christ. It's, it's not got to do with their debt to you, but your debt to Him. That's the truth. That's the fact upon which the love that we exhibit to one another is based upon. Uh, you know, they always say that blood is thicker than water. Boy, there's some geniuses out there, Brother Charlie. It takes a sharp cookie to figure that one out. You know, blood is thicker than water. What are they saying? They're saying, you know, at the end of the day, a brother's a brother's a brother's a brother. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, at the end of the day, whether we like it or not, we're spending heaven and eternity with these people. <laughs> we're going to, whether we like it or not. Whether you get along with them or not, they're still your brother or sister in Christ. Whether you get along with them or not, they're still blood-washed, redeemed, and Christ still died for them. And if Christ thought that much of them, I believe we ought to love them too. We see that brotherly love is a factual thing. I don't know tonight what God's going to do in the invitation. I don't know how it's going to go or what God's done in your heart. But I'll say this. We all need to work on this area of our life. I don't care who you are. We all need to take steps towards loving one another in a greater way. We all need to love each other in Christ, in the love of Calvary. And you'll find that true love, it's about sacrifice, but it's also about surrender. Surrender. It's not about a still resolve. It's about surrender. It's about giving over and allowing the Holy Ghost to lead and guide and direct you and allowing your heart to be submitted and surrendered to Jesus Christ. You may have somebody that you have trouble loving. Wouldn't be unusual. Could I say that through the love of God, you can love them in a way that you ought to? You may have someone that you've been at odds with. You wouldn't be the first. Do you know that through the love of Calvary, you can still love them? You say, well, preacher, what if they hurt me? Well, you hurt Christ. 
right? He loved you, right? Say, preacher, should I not protect myself? No, no. The Lord is your strong arm. He's your protector. You don't have to worry about guarding your heart against others because it's not your heart in the first place. It belongs to Him. And He will guide you and He will direct you and He will give you grace to do that which is in His will.